Congratulations on making it through another weekend of social isolation. You know, with enough practice, you'll be an all-star in no time. Welcome to your New Mexico government. I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. Our podcast is focused on COVID-19. We're so glad that KUNM is giving us some time on its airwaves. We'll be here all week long at 8 p.m., so tune in. We've got a packed show for you today about people in New Mexico's jails and prisons during the pandemic. If you're behind bars right now and would like to share your experience, we've got a hotline and we'll play your messages on our future shows. Call 505-218-7084. Or maybe you've got a family member who's incarcerated and want to share your concerns. That number again is 505-218-7084. Or you can email us at yournmgov at gmail.com. You know, there are places where people cannot stand six feet away from each other, where there's not enough medical supplies or staff to help people who become infected. Places where poor medical care has long been a concern. Prisons and jails can become virtual petri dishes for infection. Today, we look at human rights concerns and what's being done to protect the prison population and the staff who work inside. We go behind the walls. But first, executive producer Marisa DeMarco is here with a quick rundown of what we know today, Monday, March 30th, as of 5 p.m. People around the country are having trouble getting COVID tests or are waiting a long time for results, according to The New York Times. The paper also reports that the Food and Drug Administration gave emergency approval to two malaria drugs to treat people hospitalized with coronavirus. But there's not a lot of evidence yet that the drugs work. In New Mexico, there are now 281 confirmed cases of the virus, and there have been three deaths. 26 people have recovered, according to the Department of Health. The Santa Fe New Mexican is reporting that Trump promised the governor on a phone call to build a U.S. Army field hospital in Albuquerque with 248 beds. An inmate at the Bernalillo County Jail tested positive for coronavirus on Sunday, according to KRQE. When he entered the jail, he didn't show any symptoms, but his mom was later hospitalized and tested positive. He's been isolated in the jail, and the areas he was in have been quarantined. For your New Mexico government, I'm Marisa DeMarco. To dig into the issues surrounding coronavirus and the criminal justice system, I reached out to Jeff Proctor, journalist for the Santa Fe Reporter, who's going to help us understand the dangers that are in front of us. Jeff, first tell me, how are you feeling? Uh, you know, I'm I'm just trudging along like the rest of us at this point, Khalil. It's allergy season in New Mexico, um, which I think creates a lot of confusion for yes. people who suffer from uh, getting beat up by the juniper and all that stuff. So I, I think I'm doing okay up here so far. Okay, that's good. That's good to hear. And uh, it is allergy season. It's quite confusing. I had to run to Walmart briefly over the weekend. And a few people were sneezing and coughing. And, oh, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. So many people got away from them very quickly. But they, they soon said it was allergies. And you could see the anxiety just lessen. Yeah, we've, we've grown scared of each other. And, you know, in some reason, in some instances, rightly so. Yeah. Strange days. Yes, very strange days. Now, can you break down this situation with prisons and jails and COVID-19? Uh, yes, and interesting that we would be having the conversation today. The Metropolitan Detention Center here in Bernalillo County had its first uh, inmate test positive last night. The county announced um, just a couple of hours ago that they had an inmate test positive uh, for the for the new coronavirus there. That inmate is um, in an isolation pod right now and being attended to, according to the county, 
by the jail's medical staff. So um, especially with the pace of how things move with the news cycle these days, um, I want to be cautious about saying first or only, but to my knowledge, that is the first incarcerated person um, who's tested positive in New Mexico so far. So would you say that prisons and jails, are they responding fast enough? Is How many people have been tested? Very, very, very few. So I have been monitoring um, the state's prisons. Uh, we have uh, 12 prisons in the state of New Mexico, and I've also been monitoring a couple of the larger county jails, including MDC in Berlio County, the one in Santa Fe, and a couple of others. To my knowledge, as of Friday or Saturday was the last update I got from corrections. They had tested one inmate. Um, Santa Fe County uh, has tested two, maybe three, um, and MDC had tested two um, as of the last count. Why is that? Is it because there's not enough staff or supplies? Uh, well, so far, what we're being told, everyone seems to have kind of the same answer to that question. So what they've all done, at least the, the jails and prisons that I've been in touch with and have been reporting on, they are doing what they're called what they're calling screening uh, of all inmates and daily screening for corrections officers, which basically consists of a series of questions about whether um, uh, the person has some, has symptoms or has traveled. The same kinds of questions you would be asked if you called the coronavirus hotline right now. Um, and, you know, they're saying that they don't have anybody who's symptomatic. That's the answer for that they're giving, at least for why they're not testing um, or doing any broader testing inside the jails and prisons. I, I think it's a, a relatively similar answer to the one that we're getting in the larger population. There's limited capacity to do testing. Um, that's a whole other conversation. There are a million reasons for that. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're trying to trying to only test the people who are apparently sick. So, yeah, I, obviously the jails and prisons create um, a unique set of challenges and circumstances, uh, given the sort of confined nature of, of those places. It's, a, it's literally a captive uh, population of people. Um, so, I, you know, lots of folks in the criminal justice uh, community are, you know, looking at ways or suggesting ways to the state and the counties to reduce the risk uh, for incarcerated people. Uh, you know, that would include letting some nonviolent offenders go to relieve some of the um, overpopulation stress in some of the jails and prisons um, and also to undertake a more rigorous testing regimen that has not happened um, so far in New Mexico. They've let a few people go from MDC. They've identified a handful of others who could be medically um, uh, at greater risk medically to the coronavirus. Um, and that's, that's sort of the extent of what's been done so far. That does not seem to be enough to ensure safety of the population and a prevention of it potentially getting out of hand and getting outside of the prison and jail walls. Now, What's the governor and law enforcement um, and, and lawmakers, law enforcement lawmakers, what are they saying about this? So the governor has said almost nothing um, about the situation in the jails and prisons. One of my colleagues attended the last of the in-person press briefings 
I think it was last week, Khalil, to be honest with you, I'm losing track of time, pretty good up there like everybody else. I think it was last week. Um, I, I, one of my reporters from, from SFR actually asked during the press briefing what was being done in the jails and prisons, um, and the governor really didn't answer the question other than to say, you know, we're, we're doing some additional sanitizing. Um, of course, things move so fast and change so quickly. That was a week ago. Uh, they do say that they've done some additional, uh, taken some additional steps in the prisons, but she, she really has not addressed it. I have been uh, working on getting uh, an interview with her from my other journalism home, New Mexico, in depth, and am hoping to, uh, to, get, to get an interview with the governor and be able to share that with readers sometime this week. Uh, but no, ha- there, there hasn't been much hasn't been much said from uh, um, from most of the, the state's lawmakers or from the governor. They're going to have to address this pretty soon because um, it's only it's only it's only going to get worse for everyone. Now, last question for you before I let you get out of here. Um, so we've got a handful of people tested. There's talk of releasing nonviolent offenders as and a few, in fact, have been released from MDC. Not a, many, but a few. A few. What are I'm 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 wondering if um, you have a you have a, a a glean on lawmakers reticence in releasing pop prisoners. Obviously, we understand we release someone. They can then particularly in a situation like this where not many people are on the streets, then go out and commit another offense. Is that the primary reason why officials and lawmakers are kind of uh, holding on making it a, a decision? To be honest, I'm not sure if that is, if that, if that factors into their reluctance to speak publicly about it, um, but but surely it has to be factoring into their decisions to not take some of the more aggressive steps that the criminal defense bar and the public defender's office and um, other uh, you know policy advisors and policy makers have suggested that they take. Uh, everybody knows, and this will come as exactly zero of a surprise to listeners. New Mexico has had. Um, you know, really kind of persistently and stubbornly high crime rates, particularly in Albuquerque over the last handful of years when the rest of the country is seeing decreases for violent and property crimes. So surely there is a a public safety concern um, about about letting jail or prison inmates um, go. And, you know, unfortunately, and as, as crass as this is, as, as a result of the, the real or perceived public safety issue, there's also a political calculus to this. So yes. I, I, I think, yes, that has to be part of what is going into the, the decision to, to not do as much as some folks would like to see done. Um, at the same time, we've, we've already seen examples in other countries and in other places in the U.S., where once it does get into an incarcerated population, it spreads very, very quickly, and it's incredibly dangerous. Very dangerous. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this because this is uh, potentially threatening the health of all of us. He's Jeff Proctor. Thank you so much, very much for being with me, and feel better. Thanks a lot. Take care. Have a good day. You too. 
Last week, reports that a public defender in Santa Fe tested positive for coronavirus. Proctor, who we just heard from, broke that story for the Santa Fe reporter. I reached out to get a firsthand account of what it's like to have the virus and to talk about how the virus is affecting people she defends in court. Jennifer Burrell joins the show. Jennifer, how are you doing? I'm actually doing much better. I appreciate the thoughts. Really glad, really happy to hear that. Now, you you struggled to get a COVID test. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, we knew after seeing what had happened uh, overseas and then that we were starting to get cases in the United States. I believe at that time we were around 60 in the United States, confirmed. Me and two of my colleagues uh, were returning from the jail and, you know, had some It kind of seemed like seasonal allergy kind of things, coupled with some achy muscles, that kind of stuff. Um, And so we attempted to go get tested. The state health clinic that we went to said that they didn't have any tests and gave us the number for the uh, epidemiology department um, at the Department of Health. That's before there was a hotline set up. So we called that number. We were put on hold. And after about 10 minutes, it kept hanging up. And so we called back for about half an hour and kept getting hung up on and, and weren't able to get tested. Um, So we continued to work. And the following week, people started to kind of realize that it might be coming. And, you know, our office took measures to implement social distancing. The jail um, started saying that we couldn't come back after I think our last jail visit was on the 11th of March in person. And we worked on setting up video conferencing from the jail so that we could still communicate with our clients. Then the weekend of the 21st, 22nd, on that Saturday, I was eating lunch, still not feeling great, you know, but we all kind of go to work when we don't feel great. Um, and, uh, you know, because we still have stuff to do and um, we're not in elementary school anymore. And so I started coughing really badly during lunch um, and uh, and I started having sharp pains in my lungs. Um, and I called the New Mexico Department of Health hotline and they said no, couldn't be tested. So I called the Christmas St. Vincent's hotline and they said, yes, absolutely. Go get tested. So I went in Santa Fe and got tested. And Tuesday in the evening, I got my results that I was positive. That's got to be very frustrating. You call the Department of Health and you get hung up on several times and then they tell you, no, don't worry about to get tested. You call another organization. They test you immediately. And it turns out that you were positive. That's incredibly frustrating. How did that feel? It's very frustrating. You know, I'm worried um, about my family. I have some at-risk people in my family. I'm worried about myself. I am immune compromised and suffer from two autoimmune disorders. Um, But I'm mostly concerned about my clients. I have clients in jail with severe medical issues that more than likely wouldn't survive getting this. And so that's really what my biggest concern was, was the lack of ability to do anything to change it. Have you heard from any of your clients? Oh, absolutely. And they're terrified. Absolutely terrified. Wow. And, you know, illnesses of any kind, they spread through detention facilities very quickly. We know this. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, Jeff Proctor did a great story early on. Jeff and I did, I believe, that second week in March, talking about that inmates cannot do social distancing. There's no way to stay six feet apart from each other. They don't have, you know, bleach or Lysol to clean their areas. And they don't have any control over who they come in contact with. They share bathrooms. They share toilets. They share showers. They don't control who makes their food. They don't control what food they get. They don't control who gives them their food. And so they are really vulnerable. And then we have, I have a gentleman in there now with a severe spinal cord injury and a diabetic pump and an open wound on his foot. All things that make him 
very, very vulnerable. We know that diabetes can escalate quickly with someone who has this infection, which makes it even more deadly. Mm. Now, do you worry that COVID was passed to folks in jail? Absolutely. You know, I feel so mixed on this because I know that the jail warden doesn't have the ability just to let people out, right? Um, It takes all the justice partners working together to do that. The governor has that authority and the police have the authority to choose to cite people with a summons um, and have them report to court at a later date rather than taking them to jail for low-level offenders, things like drug possession, shoplifting, those kind of things, which would mean people would still be held accountable. They're just not in the jail right now. And while you know I would like everybody out of the jail, I realize that that's not realistic. But if we can greatly reduce the number of people in the jail, then the warden has a better opportunity to care for those people who remain. Yes, and so that it doesn't get out um, from people being released or people just going in and working with prisoners. Now, what aspects of the state's COVID response healthcare, healthcare-wise do you think may need to change? Well, the fact that there could be some would be good. You know, I think our jails are not meant to be hospitals, right? Um, they're meant to be more of a triage center, and if it's serious, then they ship them to the hospital. Um, but we have to realize that the, the burden um, on the county is huge if that happens, because when inmates are taken to the hospital, uh, it requires that two deputies go and stay with that inmate, because technically they're still in custody. And so if we have two deputies on one inmate at the hospital um, for, you know, they're saying that on average people stay on a ventilator between 14 and 21 days, that's a huge waste of resources with officers who could be on the street helping people um, and protecting our communities. And so if we end up with just 10 inmates, that's 20 sheriff's deputies who would have to be posted at the hospital. Um, so I think we really need to take this seriously. I think something else that I am observing right now is how much we are realizing, not just in the criminal justice system, but overall, how many of these kind of things are unnecessary. Is it really necessary to put somebody who's charged with drug possession in jail? Or is that really a community health problem, not a criminal justice problem? Because all these people, these low-level offenders, really should have never been in jail. They, you know, We can hold people accountable for their actions without putting them in jail. I personally agree with you on that. And my hope is that as the threat of the coronavirus lessens, we can then begin to address some of these issues that are very, very stark right now that we see, such as do nonviolent drug offenders need to be locked up? Let me ask you this final question. Since you did the interview with Jeff Proctor from the Santa Fe Reporter, have you heard from any public officials or anyone else? Have you seen any changes in the way things are being done or who is given tests? You know, MDC came out today and said their first person tested positive um, and they have a number of people in quarantine. And they have said in the media reports that they will test every inmate. Now, that's more than 1,300 people. I don't know if they realistically have that many tests available immediately, um, but I hope they do. Because I think this is such a vulnerable population that we can't only test people when they get sick. Um, You know, one of the reasons that I wasn't tested previously was because I didn't have a fever. But I will let you know that I've never had a fever. And so if they're requiring that somebody has a fever and know somebody who tested positive, which was really hard to find when we were at the early stages of this, um, then very few people were being tested. Um, So I hope that they take the measure and say, listen, we're going to try to test people 
before they're showing really bad symptoms and get them isolated sooner so that they're not contaminating as many people. Because by the time someone is exhibiting all of those symptoms, which are, you know, high fever, bad cough, know somebody else who's tested positive, um, they probably already contaminated 20 or 30 people over the course of two weeks. Yeah, I can tell you also that I just today got a letter. Santa Fe County has developed a task force and the warden, it says, I haven't had an opportunity to speak with the warden since I got the email this afternoon, um, but it says that the warden is going through and trying to identify which inmates need to be released. All right. Well, that's progress. It's slow progress, but it's some progress. She is Jennifer Burrell, happily on the mend an attorney from Santa Fe who had contracted the coronavirus. Thank you very much for being with us. And hopefully we get to talk to you in a few weeks to see how everything's going. Thank you, Khalil. I appreciate it. Up next, we're going to hear from people who advocate for the rights of people behind the walls. And later, we talk to the cabinet secretaries for the state's Department of Corrections and the Children, Youth and Families Department. But first, some quick messages. Like you, KUNM is trying to adjust to extraordinary circumstances. In order to keep our staff and community healthy, we're doing everything we can to operate the station remotely. We'll still be broadcasting music and news 24-7, but you'll notice some changes in programming as we adapt and find new ways to bring you great radio. Don't worry, any changes we make will be temporary, and the KUNM you know and love will still be here when the threat of COVID-19 abates. Hi, my name is Joan Robbins. I like the quiet drive because it's quiet. It's less of an interruption to the programming. I love KUNM for its diverse programming and so much more. We're back. This is your New Mexico government. KUNM's got us on the air every night this week, covering different aspects of how COVID-19 is affecting our community. Hear last week's episodes where we heard from tipped workers, community responders, and parents and students. Find us on KUNM.org, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for your NMGov. Today, we're talking about prisoners and jails. Celinda Guerrero is a community organizer with millions for prisoners in New Mexico. She spoke to us last Friday. Here's that report. Celinda, thanks for being with me today. Yes, thank you so much for having this conversation. This is a very important conversation, you know, because medical care in state jails and prisons is notoriously bad. And these places often just see normal colds and flus and other illnesses. They spread quickly because of the living conditions. What are you thinking about today as a longtime advocate for the rights of those people who are incarcerated and their families as they deal as we all deal with this pandemic? Yeah, so I have had a, a huge surge, of course, uh, from people who are loved ones, uh, for people behind the walls, so wives, mothers, fathers, children who are reaching out to millions for prisoners for support. So we know Department of Corrections since over three weeks ago has stopped all visitation. Phone calls are limited because everybody is in segregation right now, and then staffing is low. And so folks are having difficulty getting commissary orders done. There's definitely a food shortage behind the walls, lack of soap, lack of cleaning supplies. 
they are not right now completing releases timely, um, and they're getting word from caseworkers that they're not going to be released at all, which is a huge concern, and we haven't been able to confirm that with Department of Corrections, but we know that people right now are beyond the release dates and have not been released. And they have lots of questions about the guards, because we know that in these lockdown conditions, the only way that this virus can enter the facility is through legal counsel and staff. What are some logical steps you think people in charge of prisons and jails can take right now outside of just releasing nonviolent offenders to head this off? Because from what you've just stated, it sounds like, I mean, we've known that there's been an egregious failure for years in our prison system. But it sounds like this is, well, the chickens are coming home to roost in this matter. Millions for prisoners, uh, we don't believe that prisons are appropriate anyway. We believe that prisons are dangerous and harmful and that state that like violence can never be cured with violence. So we are prison abolitionists. So we don't believe in good felons and bad felons. We are calling for the release of all people behind the walls. We have the tools and resources in place for uh, to have community monitoring be used. We know that it's happening right now with probation and parole. It is possible through pretrial services. We have the resources and all lives are valuable. And the other thing is, is we're calling for an immediate stoppage of all court proceedings. We know that in Lee County, because a trial was held, that uh, somebody tested positive for coronavirus in one of those trial rooms, and and everybody potentially was uh, impacted there. Also, we just had the brave, brave Jennifer Burrell step up, who is a public defender out of Santa Fe, who has tested positive and admitted to being in contact with at least 61 people before she received her positive test. So we have lack of testing available for our our public defenders, attorneys, COs, prison administrators, prison staff, medical staff, they should all have, like the state should immediately sanction testing for all of those individuals and they should be standing down until they have a negative test. And we should not be holding trials right now. We should not be working to put more bodies behind the walls right now. There should be a stay right now put in place and it can be resumed when society resumes again. There is absolutely no reason that these should be moving forward. What measures can be taken by the Department of Corrections? We've seen that the governor has made these measures for the public, but what can the Department of Corrections do? The Department of Corrections should be doing exactly the same thing that everybody else is doing. So making sure that people have enough resources, that they have soap, cleaning supplies, access to quality food, that they are able to sustain themselves. Um, They're locked in in, an eight by 10 room and a lot of them are still being housed two to a cell. That must be stopped. If we're going to have people confined two people to a space that small, we need to be meeting their basic human needs. And we have to be testing the people who potentially could be introducing this to them. It's mandatory. It has to be mandatory. We have to protect lives. We've got to step up and do a lot more. Now, you mentioned on air when you were on Let's Talk New Mexico that there's been more work strikes and even a riot in New Mexico prisons and jails. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yes. On uh, March the 20th, there was a riot in the Cibola County uh, Detention Center. That is a core civic CCA privately run New Mexico prison um, that has a contract with the state of New Mexico. In the level two there, there was a riot. Now, we have to remember what level two conditions are like. And those are they're like dorm units and they're stacked with bunk beds. 
that are 48 inches apart. And these are humans that are warehoused together who are not being given any information or any resources. We have not yet been able to confirm that the riot was only about that. We do know that the riot had something to do with people not getting the information that they want. We're asking about. They weren't getting access to be able to have that regular contact with their families to know that their families are okay. And so conditions definitely are playing a role in the uprisings that are happening. And these are people who are fighting for their lives. Like Martin Luther King tells us, a riot is the voice of the unheard. In Angola, just this week, they had a work stoppage where the men, for folks that don't know about Angola, Louisiana prison, it was a former slave plantation that was turned into a prison. They still are required to pick cotton there. And the prisoners were still being required to go out into the fields and do work closer than five feet from each other, not being given information, not being denied access to soap. And they still have people, contractors coming in and out of the facility who potentially are exposing them. They do have positive cases in Angola prison. And the story is not being told. Nobody knows that these things are happening behind the walls because these are the voiceless. Tell me, what's next for you on this issue? What are you working on and how are you going to tackle it? We're right now organizing advocacy to the parole board. We're going to be doing a mass call out for anybody who is parole eligible to be immediately paroled. There's absolutely no reason we should be holding people who are eligible for release. We're also advocacy for all of our lifers. We know that there are lifers that have conditions like cancer, who are in their 70s, who are elders, who have already served 30 and 40 years and longer. There is no reason and we should be holding them in those conditions where their lives are at stake. I really appreciate all of the work that you're doing, and I'm really grateful that you've come on the show to give voice to the voiceless. Thank you so much. She's Celinda Guerrero, founder of Albuquerque Mutual Aid. Thank you again, and be well, okay? Thank you so much. We appreciate you. To continue our conversation and to find out what organizations like the ACLU are doing about prisoners in New Mexico who may be suffering from COVID-19. I'm here to talk with Baron Jones from the ACLU. Baron, thanks for being with me. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So last week you were on Let's Talk New Mexico to talk about prisoners' rights. You're following this closely and everything is moving fast. What has changed and what is changing right now? Um, well, right now, you know, we're starting to see cases of the um, of the virus in our county jails and the close quarters. You know, last week when we first had our conversation, it was a theoretical thing, right? It was something that um, we we knew or was probable, but, but we didn't know it was happening. So now it's really happening. That's one of the the biggest changes um, that has happened since we spoke. Now, we've heard for years about poor medical care in the state's prisons and jails around New Mexico. That, that That's not an unknown fact. Is that in line with what you're hearing about right now? How does that shake out during a situation like this? A little bit about me really quickly. Um, I spent about 10 years in various prisons and county jails throughout the state. Um, and then I also worked as a journalist, so I got a chance to sort of cover it and do deep dives into um, medical um, prison contractors. Well, and so I would say that um, this would be no different than anything um, else. It's a disincentive um, when you have private contractors um, who um, receive a set dollar amount to provide health care, that they're going to do what is always best. I'm not saying that this is the case, but I don't see how that would move away from the norm. Okay, so you don't see any incentive for them to 
perform better under such right, extreme right, circumstances. Right. New Mexico correction facilities, um, yeah, the, the medical conditions are deplorable, as you, as you spoke of. I don't see how this is going to change anything. So we have deplorable medical conditions in these prisons and correctional facilities, and there's people there. Have you spoken to prisoners and or families of prisoners? What are they saying? What are their worries? Their worries is that um, I spoke to one uh, family member of a, of a young man um, who's um, incarcerated in, in, in Hobbs um, and the prison in Hobbs, Lee County Correctional um, Facility. And, and, and her complaint was that, um, that that they're allowing some of the prisoners to move about, right? So the prisoners who um, work under different programs, they're going out and then they're interacting with, with, with elderly um, inmates or, you know, folks who are sick inside the medical units and things like that. Um, I'm also hearing that um, folks um, don't really have access to soap. We know warm water. Um, I, I think maybe I've been in, and I'm not, uh, Khalil, I'm not exaggerating when I've been in, you know, several jail and prison cells, and I, I don't think i ever seen one with warm water, right? Mm. You know what I mean? And let alone soap, right? Yeah. Um, I, we, we know that um, many folks have to buy their soap off the, the commissary, and under conditions like this, when you need to be very vigilant, it just doesn't add up. You know, the, the, I, I think the honor should be on the um, prison and jail officials to to really comply with recommendations public health experts have outlined to, to help tackle this um, virus. Well, let's get to that. I mean, has the ACLU reached out to the Department of Corrections or the county jails? Um, yeah, well, you know, um, at the very beginning of, of this, I was just looking at the letter today. 20 days ago, we sent a letter to all 30 county jails, the Department of Corrections, and a few other stakeholders, I believe. You know, I I, I would be, I, I guess I need to look at it, but a couple other um, um, state departments, maybe even including the Department of Health, um, I would have to check on that to see who all um, that letter was addressed to, mm-hmm. asking them to sort of outline their plans to keep new Mexicans safe, you know, the people in their custody safe. And unfortunately, we only got one response, um, and that was from the county jail and the San Juan County Jail and the San Juan County officials. So, yeah, so we have been in contact. Um, and also, several people of our staff have worked with other organizations who, uh, excuse me, um, organizations and civil rights law firms who have been really on the front of this, trying mm-hmm. to really push to get get people released. Mm-hmm. What is the ACLU prepared to do to take steps further? Um, you know, uh, me being a, a, a non-attorney, a non-attorney um, ACLU employee, I need to sort of, you know, negotiate that, that yeah. course a little bit. But I believe that um, we're doing um, all bets are on the table. You know, our, our legal team is, is working really, really diligently. They, you know, they, as is with everyone in the organization, uh, sort of paying close attention to what's um, taking place across the nation and sort of, you know, generate ideas. But we are um, really sort of got our, our thumb on the pulse, so to speak, and we're continuing, we're prepared to, you know, do sort of what, what it takes. Okay, I hear that. Now, what can our listeners do to help you in your efforts? There's, there's going to be, first of all, if anyone really want to get involved, you know, they can send me an email at bjones at aclu-nm.org, right? And I can help them plug in. But, you know, sometime uh, in a couple of days here, we're going to, you know, to ask the public to, to sort of make, uh, maybe help us um, bring awareness to this issue and, 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 and help us 
champion for the release of um, our most vulnerable people and just people who should not be um, incarcerated. And also um, to, to help in the long run, because, you know, while we're dealing with this public health crisis today, this problem underlies, right, um, or, or, or overshadow, whichever, I'm probably saying it wrong, excuse me if I, if I got it wrong, but it, it sort of speaks to um, our penchant um, for over-incarceration. You know, we, we tend to address public health issues, um, addiction, um, as if they're criminal issues, and we need to sort of change that and, and free up resources so we won't have to deal with this in the future. If there's anything that this pandemic and crisis has shown, particularly me, is that um, a lot of the underlying issues that have been problems for for years and generations in the United States are really coming to the forefront now. Hopefully people will take this time of self-isolation to decide what we want to do about them when we come out of this. He is Baron Jones with the ACLU. Baron, thank you for your efforts and thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much, Khalil. You have a wonderful um, evening and afternoon. You as well. To further along this conversation of prisoners and their rights, I've got Matthew Coit. He is a defense attorney who is here to advocate for prisoners' rights. Matthew, thanks for being with me. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. So you've long advocated for limitations on who can be kept in solitary confinement and for how long. What are your main concerns during this pandemic? Well, of course, uh, being uh, one of my main concerns is that they're going to be using solitary confinement as the only method of treatment for inmates who come down with this virus. In other words, instead of taking people to the hospital or providing them medical care, they'll just be placed into solitary as a um, as a, a quarantine measure. And being in solitary confinement is a particularly toxic place to be when you're not sick. But of course, when you're very ill, it will be truly frightening and truly um, uh, unpleasant. Yeah, there's no way they can get the proper medical care and the constant uh, attention they need if someone is in solitary, correct? Well, because we, we're lucky in that we can see ahead of what the what's going to happen to us in our prison system in New Mexico because we're behind the curve a little bit. And you look across the world or in other jurisdictions in the United States and you can see the infections are going to occur in the prisons. They will become rampant in the prisons. It uh, In Italy, when it first began, they locked the prisons down. They stopped visits and a riot took place. There were some 12 dead in Italy, 16 people escaped and 59 guards were injured. In In Colombia, you have 24 dead after riots because of there were inadequate safeguards uh, for the prison population for the coronavirus and the inmates uprose. Mm-hmm. Venezuela shot five people trying to escape. So you see there is going to be problems ahead of us if we don't act now. And um, as, as guards and staff become sick from the uh, virus, they take off time from work or are isolated themselves. The ability to control facilities becomes diminished. Yeah. We only, I think if you have looked back, uh, we have some 25% uh, vacancy rates in our prison staffing and some facilities is even worse than up, up to about 40 or 50%. So you can imagine what the, this disease will do to the staff, let alone the inmates. Yeah, this is going to stress them much more with already inadequate resources. It just exacerbates that situation. Now, have you spoken to anyone in jail or in prison? What are you hearing from folks? Well, the people I've spoken to, both both I uh, have contacts who, who work for the prison system who've contacted me, and I have inmates and clients. They're concerned. They're worried about a lack of leadership, 
a lack of management. There has been no uh, significant attempts to reduce the prison populations uh, right now. And that's exactly what we need to do. In New York, you see uh, they're planning on releasing 1,100 inmates from their prison population. They've been forced to do that because the disease has already uh, had an outbreak in their facilities. Georgia, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, California, Louisiana have all taken efforts to release prisoners now, mostly because they have these outbreaks in their facilities and and, and they're being forced to do it. Well, we need to do it ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to act now, I think. Now, are, have you heard of any measures being taken to prevent or limit an outbreak at the facilities? Not not greatly. In fact, we've been actually misled at times. The MDC told us a couple of weeks ago that they were testing for corona on entry in the facility, which is plainly not true. They didn't have the ability to test for corona virus. Uh, We've had our first corona victim in or or, or diagnosis of an inmate in, in MDC today. Uh, They had indicated that they were capable of triaging these people, but that's not true so what 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 things have been done very little soap washing materials in our prisons is hard to come by they have indigent packs for people in prison that are tiny amounts of soap mm. and people are being forced to buy their supplies on commissary mm. we should immediately give free soap and cleaning m- mechanisms for people in these facilities and we need to above all reduce our population levels so that we can manage this in in the next few weeks and months. I was just about to ask you about that. Now, folks are advocating that nonviolent offenders be let out of incarceration immediately. But do you think that there's a risk to people on the outside if there already had been infections? Well, um, obviously, it gets harder to re- to be choosing people to release if the in- if the pandemic is in or epidemic is in the facility. Mm-hmm. That's why you should do it now when it's easier. But yeah, we have people who are in traf- for traffic tickets, for failure to pay fines, probation violations of, of a technical nature. Uh, these people are all ideal candidates to release quickly. Some parts of the state have made an effort to do that, most notably in Donna Anya County, where they've had, the courts have set up dockets to speed up the release of these types of individuals. Mm-hmm. But other parts of our communities in New Mexico have done nothing. Particular, I'm concerned about uh, Bernalillo County with DA Raul Torres trying to create rules with preliminary hearings to remove uh, due process protections inmates and actually hold them rather than the reverse, trying to get them out. So I would encourage people like Raul Torres or our governor to be to take on a leadership role here and do the unpopular thing which is to act sensibly and reduce these types of people, geriatric prisoners, prisoners who have medical conditions that are, make them most vulnerable, and low-risk uh, offenders. You know, these are easy people to release. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. Now, what can our listeners do to help with these efforts? Uh, well, if, if you can call your um, local politician and encourage them to get this underway, the idea that our prisons are immune from this or it's not going to happen is a fallacy. You just have to look at these other jurisdictions which are ahead of us a couple of weeks. So, so act now, make a noise, demand for some a- action on our prisoners and jail inmates before the virus gets out of control in these facilities. It's really hope we can do is something before it becomes too late. He is Matthew Coit, an attorney and advocate for prisoner reform. Thank you so much for being with me today. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Up next, we'll hear from Corrections Department Secretary Alicia Tafoya Lucero and from Children's Youth and Families Department Secretary Brian Blaylock. First, some messages. Our quiet drive is underway. No interruptions to our regular programming. Just a quick reminder that KUNM needs your support to keep the news, information, and music coming your way without fail. Think of how KUNM helps you navigate these challenging times. We can only be a strong voice for New Mexico with your help. Give now at KUNM.org. That's KUNM.org. Hi, I'm Paige, and I am a contributor over years, um, and this is a really honorable way to um, take care of getting your funding um, while not interrupting programming. Thanks. And we're back with your New Mexico government. We promised you government officials. Well, here's executive producer Marisa DeMarco talking to Department of Corrections Secretary Alicia Tafoya Lucero. Thanks for speaking with us today, Secretary Tafoya Lucero. Sure, thank you. Can you tell us of any people who are in prison been tested for coronavirus? We have had one individual tested and the test result came back negative. And so there are tests available for people who are in prison right now. So in this case, the individual is actually tested by the local hospital, but we do have access to test And have people been showing any symptoms of being sick? And how do you determine when it's time for someone to get that test? Uh, No, so far, anybody that would present with the fever of 100.3 and report the other primary signs, those are the people that we would separate and test. Now, is it possible for people who are in the state's prisons to socially distance from one another? You know, we're a very closed environment in all of our institutions, and we are not able to, like, open up new units and separate beds out from each other. So in places where inmates live in dormitory settings, it's really not a realistic possibility. In this situation, it's very unorthodox, very different than anything that we've seen before in that the inmates are in their closed environment and it's the staff members that are coming in from the communities that might have the ability to potentially expose the inmates to the virus. So to the extent possible, we're managing social distancing between staff members and the inmate populations. So what's the policy right now for people who are in prison and who show signs of being sick? We're separating them out, taking them to medical right away. And if they present with those symptoms, then we would get them tested. Thus far, we have not had any inmates aside from the one that was tested that have presented with the uh, potential COVID symptoms. And if people do present with those symptoms and you have to separate them out, do they go into segregation, into solitary confinement? They would be sent into the medical unit where they would have access to medical providers 24 hours a day and they would be in a separated location, but they would have relatively continuous contact with the staff in that area. You know, the state passed a new law around solitary confinement and who can go there and how long they can be 
in segregation. Do you have concerns as this thing progresses that you're not going to be able to follow the law around that? I am really not concerned about that. I mean, the the law involving restricted housing talks specifically about the meaningful contact, how much access they have to meaningful contact. And inmates that are separated in medical holding have access to meaningful contact with staff members throughout the day. It's important that we're able to keep them separate until we're able to get test results back, though. And that way we can make sure that we're protecting not only the rest of the inmate population, but any staff members that they interact with. So some folks are calling for nonviolent offenders to be released during this time. Is that something that's on your radar? And what do you think about that? It's my understanding that a lot of the jails have been doing that with people who are not adjudicated yet. So the first step that we've taken is with our probation population. And what we're doing is re-evaluating some of the uh, violation reports. Ultimately, the judiciary is responsible for whether or not they would allow somebody in a jail to release on a probation violation or whether they want to continue to follow through that process. So that's one aspect of how we're trying to help jails reduce their populations. And as far as uh, prison facilities, of course, everybody here is sentenced to a term of incarceration. And we are having early preliminary conversations about it, but we have not yet made any official decisions But when we do, we'll certainly advise um, the public and make sure that we send out information once we have figured out what that looks like. You know, this thing is progressing so quickly. And I know that colds and flus and other illnesses often really sweep through an incarceration facility quickly. Is there a thought to making that decision soon so that if you're able to preserve some people's health, that it doesn't happen too late in the game? We are just having conversations about it right now. So I really don't have any firm or official information that I'm able to share on that subject. So the Department of Corrections has long been criticized for poor health care inside the state's prisons. What is the health care like in there right now? We have a a, a new contractor that we've been in contract with, I believe, since November of last year. And we are actually seeing some really great cooperation from them. They are participating with us in making sure that our staff members are screened when they're entering into the facilities. And inmates have the same access to the same level of care that a person might have in a community. Uh, Anybody that presents with any kind of concern or issue is immediately seen or talked to by a medical provider. And we do have providers in all of our facilities. And most facilities have providers on site 24 hours a day. I've seen reporting on a riot in a prison in Grants on March 20th after the prison went into lockdown. Have you seen other riots or large-scale violent events? Or how about protests? We have not seen any protests, and the disturbance that occurred on the 20th in the Northwest New Mexico Correctional Facility in Grants was handled and under control within less than an hour. Uh, We definitely had lots of support from outside law enforcement in order to help us assure that it didn't escalate or become larger than what it was. But ultimately, we identified 22 individuals that were the instigators in that incident and I'll tell you what, from the from the start of when we saw our first case in the state of New Mexico, we've really made a strong effort to make sure that every single one of our managers in every facility, that they're out there every single day 
talking to the inmate populations. They go in in the big open general population settings. They talk to them in what we call a town hall style meeting. And then they also conduct rounds and they really just hold a lot of Q&A with the inmate populations to make sure that they're answering questions, alleviating fears and anxieties, and that the inmate populations know that they have access to managers. But it's not just happening for the inmate populations. Also at uh, all of our staff shift changes, we have wardens, deputy wardens, and other high-level management staff present at those shift change meetings so that we can assure that all of our staff are receiving the most up-to-date information and that they have access to people who can answer their questions. Now, I know commissary supplies are a big part of supplementing what people need when they're inside prisons and jails. Are your commissaries all the way stocked and available for folks? Our commissaries are stocked. They are available and none of that service has been altered at all. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Department of Corrections Secretary Alicia Tafoya Lucero. Thank you for having me. Secretary Brian Blaylock is with us today to talk about the state's juvenile detention facilities. Thanks for being with us today, Secretary Blaylock. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. So CYFD runs the state's committed facility for young people convicted of crimes. Do you know how many people are in those facilities? Sure. At any given time, in our three facilities, we usually have around uh, 130 youth. And have you done any COVID testing in those facilities for either the young people who are in them or for staff? Yes. Yeah, so, so far, we haven't, any, haven't had anyone exhibit any symptoms. And so we have uh, screening mechanisms for staff and for children right now. Um, so for our staff, when they come in, there's a, a daily screening and then a temperature check to be sure that our staff are okay. And then for youth that are coming in, when we get new youth, we similarly, we do a screening check and a temperature check to be sure that um, there are no concerns on our side. Is it possible for folks who are in these facilities or who are working in them to observe social distancing? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, one of the benefits of juvenile justice reform in New Mexico, which has been taking place over the last few years, means there's a lot less youth in our facilities. And so we're able to use the space um, that that's resulted uh, quite well in order for staff to be able to do social distancing in most circumstances and um, to really be able to spread out our youth uh, in a lot of ways so that um, we can observe that. What has had to change down there since all this started? We have been um, really working to limit the exposure of our staff. And along with the rest of our department, our facilities also have increasingly gone to a, a distance or a telework um, which might sound strange at first because you're thinking, how could staff who work in a facility go to telework? But some folks in our facilities who do a lot of administrative work uh, or who do a lot of the structure to keep it running, um, they've increasingly moved to being able to do that work from home. You know, in the um, public education department, closed schools, we actually kept our educational activities running for a while um, because our kids were there anyway. And so it's not like they were going to school and back home to limit spread. But as of last Friday, we've got, we're actually limiting uh, our teachers' interaction with kids as well, just to continue to limit who's interacting with who so that we can do do our best to, to, um, to try to prevent an infection from coming into the facility. So what's the plan if someone does get sick or display symptoms that relate to COVID? <clears throat> if there was a positive case or a uh, youth with symptoms, 
we get from the Department of Health, we'd be sure that we were doing the testing uh, to confirm it. Um, but we have a quarantine protocols and we would be able to um, do quarantine and then do really best staff practices to be sure that our staff were only working and weren't kind of cross contaminating and working with different different youth um, so that we could really lock it down and try to keep it as controlled as possible within our juvenile justice facilities. The Metropolitan Detention Center released some nonviolent offenders. I know DOC is thinking about it. They're in conversation about it. Is that something that's uh, on deck for you all, too? Yes. I think we're watching that conversation happen nationally. I mean, honestly, if you have a youth that's a low-level offender and COVID is such a threat to congregate care at facilities, especially ones who are crowded or who are at capacity, it probably makes sense to at least seriously have those conversations. Um, For us and our state juvenile justice facilities, most of that work has already been done in the last few years because naturally because of juvenile justice reform. And so right now, I think I can say pretty confidently, we don't have any low-level offenders in our facilities. And what are some alternatives? Like if there was an outbreak in the state juvenile facility, what are some, do you have some plans looking at that kind of emergency situation? Yeah, we have, so we have an emergency plan that's really built on uh, quarantining uh, specific units and having staff there with the appropriate protective gear and then working with DOH around the appropriate treatment for those youth so they can stabilize and get better. Um, we do we have the ability to do that in all three of our facilities. We have space where we can um, rearrange youth and have them be in certain wings so that they can uh, weather the storm. And then if the worst case scenario happens, we're also able to move youth between our three facilities in order to to be sure that the um, that we can quarantine kids so they can get the chance to get better and, and not further the spread. Thank you, Secretary Blaylock. Thank you so much. We'll have links to all the reporting we talked about on today's episode online at KUNM.org. Special thanks to the Santa Fe reporter and Jeff Proctor for breaking the story of public defender Jennifer Burrell and for sharing info with us today. It's time to check out the resources we heard about on today's episode. And if you want to tell us about other great community-led resources, send us an email. Yournmgov at gmail.com. We'll be sure to share them. Now, do you want to help out Baron Jones and the ACLU? He told you as much in his interview. He said you could email him. Where do you email him, you ask? Jones at aclu-nm.org. Or just get in touch with the ACLU directly. aclu-nm.org. You can find a full list of the resources we talk about on each episode and opportunities to donate or help out online. bit.ly slash ynmg hub. And how are things going for you? Tell us about your story. We want to hear about it. Call 505-218-7084 and we'll play your messages on our show. Or you can email us at, you should know it by now, yournmgov at gmail.com. On tomorrow's episode, we're talking about homelessness. People are staying at home to avoid the virus and help prevent its spread. What about those without homes? What threats are the people experiencing homelessness facing? Who is helping them? We will talk about unsheltered folks and the coronavirus tomorrow on YNMG. Tune in tomorrow at 8 p.m. Your New Mexico government is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's produced by yours truly with extra help today from KUNM News Director Hannah Colton. You rock, Hannah. News update is by Marisa DeMarco. Theme music by Pope Yes, Yes, Y'all. Hear us all week long on KUNM's Airwaves at 8 p.m. Online, you can find this show on KUNM.org or subscribe through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Your New Mexico Government is a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage is provided in part by the Thornburg Foundation and the New Mexico Local News Fund. For everyone here at Your New Mexico Government, I'm Khalil A. Colonna. Thanks for listening.